Our Father, we're grateful that you brought us together on this morning, the first Sunday of Advent, and we ask that you will um, fill our hearts with hope and anticipation during this season. And I thank you for those who are here this morning. I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to perceive what it is you would have to teach us from your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was um, having a conversation with my, you know, I get these emails from, from Gil, um, you know, something like three or four weeks out. And so, you know, you're on the docket. What are you going to, what are you going to teach? And I, and I was like, well, I'm not sure really what I want to do this round. And so I was on the couch with my wife and, and, and I said, what do you, what do you think? And she said, well, why don't you think about doing something like on narratives in the Old Testament built around Advent? And I thought, bingo, that's what we'll do. Um, so here we are. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm not really good with titles, so the title of the series is Old Testament Narratives and Advent Hope. I mean, that's about how, how it runs. Um, Brandon, you're coming in here today? I am. And, all right. Keeping it on the straight and narrow? All right, all right. Um, so anyhow, I, I, and I'm, I, this, this is going to be random. I don't really have a particular, I, mean, I was thinking about it last night, um, and actually I was, my eyes were kind of open. I, I, we went to the Alabama-Auburn game yesterday, um, my middle son and I did. I, I can really only do that once a year. You people who can do that all the time, I'm amazed. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a draining social experience. <laughs> Um, and I, and I, I mean, I, I realized I sort of left agitated. I was like, what's, what's wrong with me? I'm just agitated. And I'm like, well, that was a, a massive, massive humanity and not on its best display, actually. Um, but anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, so I was a little, I was a little wired up and I was thinking, I was thinking, you know, from the standpoint of Advent and the way in which the Christian existence itself is shaped in an Advent way, we're built in such a way that we're looking forward to something in the future. We're hoping that something will, um, and I love that you know, our church has this, that something will will appear, uh, Advent, that something will come among us. Uh, assuming that that which we hope will come among us and appear is that which is not here in its fullness right now. Um, so, you know, here I was with my wife saying, okay, that's, that's a great idea. We'll do this Old Testament narratives and the Advent and, and Advent hope. And it sort of just dawned on me, and I know it's as, as, uh, as apparent as the nose on our faces, but from a very significant standpoint, the entirety of the Old Testament itself in its material and canonical form is shaped in that way. Um, the whole Old Testament is Adventish. All of it is built from beginning to the end. And one could say that the entirety of the Bible is this way, but all of the Old Testament is built in such a way as to create for us a sense of longing for something to then occur that has not occurred yet. Um, in fact, one could even see the way in which the Old Testament itself is shaped and formed, that you come to the end of the Old Testament, whether it's in its Hebrew form, in the Hebrew form, the last book of the Bible is Malachi. In our English Bibles, oh, I'm sorry, I'm wrong about that. Our English Bibles, the last book is Malachi. And in the Hebrew canon, the last book is Chronicles. Um, and, what, and both of those have their own interesting achievement to make in the sense of how we understand what the Old Testament creates in a sense of anticipation. So, for example, Malachi in our English Bibles ends with the hope for um, God's refining fire and the Elijah figure to show up who's going to make all things new. So Malachi kind of leads quite naturally right into Matthew as well. Um, but Chronicles does too. How does the book of Chronicles end? Well, the book of Chronicles ends with this deep anticipation for a future coming a Davidic king, for Davidic hope. 
Um, and so Chronicles, and I kind of like Chronicles at the end better than Malachi, but don't tell anybody. Uh, but Chronicles at the end, uh, as well, creates this Advent sense. Where, where is the promised Davidic figure who would come and make all things new? Uh, so from one standpoint, um, what you could sense that the entirety of the Old Testament and the way in which it's shaped is built around this sense of anticipation and hope for something to occur and to come for God's redemption, which was promised, God's covenantal blessings, which were promised, to be made good. Um, so this whole notion about promise and fulfillment, that's a way of understanding the, the sense of the Old Testament's own own idiom, its own language. It's, it's creating this sense of this deep sense of longing and anticipation for, for something more. And we see that not only in the way in which the Old Testament is shaped in its entirety, but we also see that in the way in which particular narrative stories of the Old Testament um, uh, create that sense of longing and anticipation for something more as well. Um, and we heard this already from the sermon, that this sense about how stories themselves tend to draw us in so that we, we see the world around us in ways that we didn't understand and know before. That's been a shift, by the way, in my own thinking over the years. Um, you know, I tend, I probably left to myself would tend to be a little bit more left-brained in orientation. So, in other words, why do we need to have all these literary tropes and the, why, why poetry, why poems? You know, just give us the facts. You know, kind of whittle these down to their propositional statements and let's move on. Uh, once we have that down, we, we, you know, we understand. And that's the reduction of our humanity to our cognitive faculties, to our conceptual faculties. And we all know we're not hardwired that way. We, we need poem and story and, and lyric. And we need um, these kinds of narratives that will draw us in and help us to see the world in ways that we couldn't see before. Uh, that's been a quite a, a significant shift, I think, over the past 25 years or so in literary studies on the whole subject of, of metaphor and how metaphors work. Uh, if you remember, you go back sort of the, all the way to Aristotle, and that's kind of way back there. We go all the way back to Aristotle. And what does Aristotle say about metaphor? Well, metaphor is its ornamental language. It's salt and pepper. And, and in some sense, metaphors get in the way of lucidity and clarity. Um, when you get into the rhetoricians like Cicero and Quintilian, they'd say you can use metaphor and allegory if you want to, but very sparingly. I mean, kind of, you know, go go carefully into this because you run the risk of obscuring the clarity of what it is you're trying to say. Um, so there's, a, and by the way, when you get into the early church exegesis and into the medieval period, this becomes a major problem um, because they're buying into that rhetorical mindset of the Greco-Roman period and this sort of allergy to poetry and this allergy to metaphor. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is the Bible's riddled with it from beginning to end. They're like, we got, we've, you know, we've got to figure out how to give an account of this. Um, and I think this is one of the more fascinating areas of, of um, Bible interpretation as you move from the early medieval period to the latter medieval period where you begin to see a deep um, appreciation for metaphor and for, and for tropes and for poetry in ways that you hadn't before. I think Dante comes onto the scene. All of a sudden, wow, you've got an entire poem that... And I think Dante thought he was writing scripture between us. I, mean, I think Dante had a very high view of what he was doing. Um, but, you know, you get to that particular notion of poetry itself as a as a particularly unique medium to portray and convey communicative truth um, and now here we are in our time and a lot of thought has been given to this whole notion about metaphor and story I mean what does metaphor do it's not merely ornamental language 
know, metaphors allow us to see and gain access to the material world around us in ways that we wouldn't be able to have access without them. And we need metaphors. We think in terms of associating things that are unlike together so that we can make sense of our world. Um, and that's part of the power of story in the Bible as well. Stories draw us in and give us a sense of what our world is and how our world, world is shaped. And so I want to go all the way back to the beginning. And this Sunday, and, I, and next Sunday, to be honest with you, I don't know what we're going to do. Am I going to David? There's, we can go anywhere we want to, so we'll figure it out. Now, but today I wanted to look at Abraham in particular. So we're back to Genesis. Because I think the Abraham story, which is a central story, it's a foundational story that shaped the Old Testament, it shaped Israel's worldview, it shapes the New Testament as well in the way in which we understand Abraham's progeny and offspring. And Abraham's entire existence is an Advent existence. Abraham's entire existence is from the beginning of Genesis 12 when God calls him, we'll go there in a second, to the end of his life, he's given promises, he's given covenantal hope from God himself, that never materializes in its fullness in this world. I mean, I think that's crucial to get a sense about Abraham embodying that particular kind of narrative. But before we get there, we kind of got to back up. So Genesis 12 is where everything starts with Abraham. And we'll get there. But you kind of got to put the car in reverse and go back to what uh, people have often referred to Genesis 1 to 11 as the primeval history. right? So what happens in Genesis chapter 1 to 11? Well, we have the creation story. And this is crucial, I think, um, because in Genesis chapter 1, you have the six days of creation. Um, and you know, I don't want to get lost in the, in the trees on this, but I, my sense is these days of creation are shaped in such a way that they're mutually interpreting one another. So, for example, day 1 and day 4 are linked together. Day 2 and day 5 are linked together. Day 3 and day 6 are linked together where you have a general concept about God creating light or separating light and darkness. And then you get to day 4 and those luminary bodies are identified. Sun, moon, stars. And then you get to the land and the sea being separated. Then you get into the living creatures being created as well. So you have this little literary play that's going on in the first chapter of Genesis all culminating in the seventh day. And this is, I think, very central to the narrative that occurs after Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1, all of creation itself, the six days of creation, are moving toward the seventh day. As St. Augustine, in his commentary on Genesis, said um, that day seven is unlike all the previous days that come before. Why? Well, this is the this is the language that's used. These are the forms of the days, right? And God finished the first day, and that was morning and evening. Actually, it goes the other way: evening and morning, and it was the first day. And then He creates, separates the land from the sea, and then evening and morning were the second day. So you have this evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning pattern, and then you get to day seven, and all you have is morning. There's no evening. And what's day seven? God saw all that he had done and he saw that it was good and he rested. He ceased from his labors. He ceased from his creative activities of creating and making and forming and shaping and fashioning. He ceased from that. Now, I think this is where we kind of have to press ourselves because our notions of rest don't necessarily predicate on God. We have to be real careful about when we think in terms of analogy as from our 
conception of verbs and ideas and nouns and then predicate that on, on God, um, God doesn't get tired, right? I mean, so God didn't finish day six and go, oh, gin and tonic, please, you know, front porch. Uh, I'm just, I'm just completely gassed over this, you know, it's not that at all. Um, it's the notion of ceasing. Um, navach is the Hebrew term. I, I'm going to say that because it's important. It's ceasing, which is also related to the Hebrew term for Shabbat, um, or resting, the, sh- the Sabbath, or Sabbat, um, Navach, these particular terms. And this is what's interesting about this, okay? This whole language about Navach, um, God ceasing, God resting, um, God no longer involved in creation itself, but now involved in what? The oversight of creation toward his own providential end, which is the redemption of the world and his, and his son. God is governing all of that from day seven. He's not creating anymore, but now he's overseeing his creation by his, his, his good um, gift of providence, and he's moving creation toward its redemptive end, all from day seven. And both um, Augustine and Martin Luther, in their own very wild ways, I, mean, I don't think I would naturally think in these terms, but these two, two uh, theologians have helped me, both of them understand that and this is kind of dangerous to think in these terms, but I think they're, they're onto something here. Um, that if Adam and Eve had never eaten the fruit, right? Uh, there's apparently, my wife and I have this on our watch list on our Amazon account. Um, this man in the high castle. Have anybody seen this show? Apparently it's really good. And it's all, it's a drama sort of built around what happened if, um, Germany and Japan had won in World War II. And it sort of builds a sort of narrative off of that. Um, those are fascinating kind of questions to raise for his, sort of historical fiction in that sense. Um, well, here's the kind of historical fiction that both Augustine and Luther raise about Genesis 1. What would have happened if Adam and Eve had never eaten the fruit? And his answer is they would have lived, their answer is both, are they would have lived in peace. They would have lived in the joy and, and the goodness of the garden. They'd have enjoyed communion with God in the garden, unfettered by sin. And yet, in time, God would have received them into the seventh day of his existence, which was unique even from the garden itself. In other words, the seventh day, that particular day, which is God's own special place, it pertains particularly to him and to him alone, what you see with Augustine and Luther is built into the creation account itself is already this eschatological or future longing. I mean, apart from the fall, that's what it is. apart from the fall, in the goodness of creation itself in the seven-day structure, Adam and Eve would have been received into that moment at some point in time to enjoy, I don't know how one really describes it, an elevated level of communion and interaction with their God. Right. Um, again, I wasn't planning on referring to Dante, but you know, this, this sort of these levels of heaven when you get into, into the Paradiso, right, in the last part of the comedy. I mean, these levels of heaven get deeper and deeper and deeper uh, to the point where, if you remember, um, you know, uh, Virgil is the tour guide for Dante down in hell, and then it's Beatrice is up in, in, in paradise, and, and he gets to a certain point, and all of a sudden, Beatrice is no longer there. You remember, he looks around like, where's, where's Lady Wisdom? She's gone. 
In other words, she, she can't go this far either. Lady Wisdom can only take you so far into the Paradiso, but at some point, she's out too. And what does Dante talk about? He talks, describes music that, that, that he's never heard before. Um, uh, choruses and melodies and harmonies that he says, I can't articulate what this sound is that I'm experiencing as I go further and further toward the throne as I penetrate into the pair. I, I guess that's kind of what Augustine and Luther are saying about day seven. It's you're penetrating to something more that's there. So already built into creation itself, absent the fall, is this notion of advent longing, is this notion of a, of an other in, the, in, in life lived, in existence lived, in communion with the God who creates and redeems. And that's the hope that you have in the garden, that then everything comes tumbling down on, in Genesis chapter 3. Now we've, we've moved from rest to unrest. And what do you have as you move through Genesis chapter 3 to chapter 11? You have the complete unraveling of the rest that God had given to creation, that God had given to His people, the, 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 their eschatological hope in Him that was unfettered and future, but there nonetheless. All of that beca- begins to become unraveled in this story in Genesis chapter 1 to 11. And you move, I think there's two movements in Genesis 1 to 11, from cosmos and order back to chaos, and from rest and communion with God back to unrest, to a lack of rest. And that's the movement that you have culminating where? Well, it culminates in the Tower of Babel. So here they are, right, trying to build a tower, and you know the story, trying to build a tower to make some sort of access. And and I I don't think the Tower of Babel, by the way, I had this picture as a child. I I thought the Tower of Babel was um, this enormous, uh, you know, um, skyscraper that they were trying to build to storm heaven all by themselves. I don't, I don't think that's what the narrative's saying. You know, they were just building a ziggurat. I don't know, some sort of large building structure that was very high. But what was that building? It was the attestation of their own efforts and their own strength and accomplishment to make themselves something, to make themselves a people. And that's why the narrative says, and God came down to see what they were doing. He's this plane there in Genesis. God, of course, he could see everything. We know that, right? But in this literary device, God has to come all the way down and go, what's going on down here? Uh, I'm so big and way up here, and you little humans down there are building your little ziggurat. What is that thing? Oh, that's an act of your own human self-achievement. I've got a remedy for that, right? Uh, your, you know, your languages are, and then they're dispersed throughout the land. So that's that's where Genesis one to eleven is moving, right? It's moving from cosmos and order back to chaos again. It's moving from rest back to significant amounts of unrest. Now, why? Why all this language about rest? Um, and this is, it's, it's a, I didn't know this. This is a kind of a new discovery, and I'm, I'm grateful to a student that I'm working with who's doing some work in this area. The Hebrew term for inheritance, which is more often than not attached to the land itself, right, um, is a term that's related to the same word for rest. Navak, menuvak is the term. It's a, it's a, it's a noun. But isn't that interesting? 
that the notion of the inheritance, God's covenant gift to His people, that beginning in Genesis chapter 12, because what are we getting in Genesis 12 as we move forward in the rest of the Pentateuch? An emphasis on land, an emphasis on relationship, and an emphasis on God's law. These are what the, these are the big three that are coming. Land, relationship, and law. All that's coming. And the land is central. And why is the land central? Why is it so important? Because that land is rest. That land is God's gift to His people that they no longer are striving. They're no longer having to wander. They're no longer displaced and disoriented. They're no longer clamoring for significance and orientation in this world. No, they have their own land. They have their own inheritance. They have their own rest in their covenant life before God. So that one begins to see, as in Genesis chapter 1, where the six days move toward what? They move toward rest. As well, God gives the land to His people as what? As an indication and a promise of rest now, but fulfilled more in the future. That's why the land's so important. And that's why when you get into the prophets, by the way, um, and it just doesn't seem to register for us because we hear some of these indictments that the prophets bring and we go, well, you know, big deal. But the charge that Micah brings in Micah chapter 1 against his people is, hey, by the way, when I bring my judgment against you, there's no longer going to be anyone who's going to guard your inheritance or guard your land. Well, what's the challenge there? Your rest, that place of safety that you know in your land, that shapes both your relationship with me and, and your relationship with, with one another, that place of safety, I'll take all that away from you. And you'll go back to what? Unrest again. So one begins to see this movement throughout the Old Testament that all is shaped from Genesis chapter 1 to 11 as it points forward and this oscillating back and forth between rest and unrest, between um, a place of location and hope to a place of disorientation and, and lack of hope. And that's the kind of Advent movement that you have. And Abraham is central to this. Why? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 12. I can find it. Genesis chapter 12. So this is right after all the craziness of the Tower of Babel. And this is how God is answering the problem of the Tower of Babel. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to that land. Now again, this that particular term land here. It's related to that covenantal concept of rest, that covenantal concept of place, of location, of security, of ceasing from striving. So you're going to go to the land that I'm going to show to you, and I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse and in all of, in, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, there's a lot of debate on verse three. In fact, a lot of ink has been spilled on this. Um, there's a whole sort of uh, cadre of scholars who think that that term, the terms there, and the end of that um, uh, chapter three should not be. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed, but it should be something like, and by you shall all the families of the earth bless themselves. 
In other words, what the claim there is is that this is not a, this is not a notion about the missional character of Abraham's seed. It's it's the notion that um, just like we say, I don't, maybe this isn't how I want to say, it, but but um, may your may your chi- you know uh, like Wobegon here, you know where all the children are above uh, above average, and you know have that little thing. Um, it's that kind. Of, may, may you be blessed like Abraham. You know, it's a kind of it's a kind of blessing that one would ask. You, we've all heard about the great things that God did for Abraham. May your blessings be like like Abraham's blessing. So the Abraham becomes a kind of byword for blessing to the nations as they as they bless one another. I don't think that's the case. I, I, I'm going to kind of go with the older translation. I do think it's passive in the sense that all the nations and the families of the earth will be blessed by Abraham and his progeny. It's a serious claim here. Well, look at verse 4, moving on. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. That, that itself is worth sort of pondering. Um, all kinds of philosophical questions are raised here, right? Why? Well, because Abraham comes out of the primordial past much like Job. I mean, there's, I, I just, I don't, I, I hear a story like Genesis chapter 12, and I just begin to see fog and smoke. You know, it's like, you know, here, here comes this figure kind of out of, well, where, where, where he, where's he from? Well, he's from the land of Tehran, and he's from here. Uh, Job's from the Ur of the Cal. Where are these places? Don't know. This is some sort of primordial world. Remember, Abraham is pre-the law. He's pre-Exodus. He's pre-Sinai. He's before all of that. And that's the way, by the way, in which all of Israel would have understood their national and their personal identity was on the basis of those stories. Sinai, Exodus, giving of the law, wilderness wandering, moving us into the land. That's how we shape our whole world. That's our, that's our constitution. That's how we view our national and our personal and our religious identity. Abraham's pre all of that. The law? I mean, in some sense, Abraham becomes quite important to, um, to Paul, the apostle. Why? Because he's demonstrating for us that as Abraham is demonstrating what faith looks like absent the law. That's why Abraham's so important to Paul. But you have to remember, he, did, he didn't have Moses. He, he has no book of Exodus to turn to. Here he is in his land, and all, which is not Israel, and he's obviously a man of some stature and wealth, and God calls him to go to a place that he doesn't even know. Doesn't that raise all kinds of... Like, how did he hear you know, was it an audible voice? Bad tacos the night before? You know, it's like, well, well, how does one know if you're hearing the voice of God? And, and, and maybe even further than that, how does one falsify a claim like that? How does one say, actually, no, that, I, don't, I don't know if that was God's voice. I mean, you, you, you all have been in the Christian world long enough to know. I mean, you've met these people. I, I, I have as well. Uh, I, I call them plain conversations. You know, somebody finds out what you do for at least what happens to me, find out what I do for a living. I tend to, I'm, I'm not very evangelistic on planes. Um, I know people share Jesus on planes. I'm, I admire people who do that. I, I'm, I'm just scared of crashing, so I don't think about, you know. Um, I've, I've always thought if the plane goes down, I'll yell something out about, you know, call on Jesus. Um, yeah, I, I'll do something. Um, but I'm, I, I'm just, you know, bef- but before that, I'm going to hedge my bets and I'm going to kind of stay focused. But, but it happens. You know, people will find out what you do for a living. You start talking to them. And, um, and then you'll get these crazy stories. You know, I, you know, I, I, yes, you know, I, I had an encounter with Jesus here. I, had, I, I saw this and I, I, I don't, I've had that happen. And, um, and I hear that kind of stuff and you, you do the, 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 the southern, 
civil, courteous kind of responses. You just kind of, oh, that's fascinating. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. And inside you're thinking, this is a, you know, this is a nut job. I mean, it's a kook, this kook stuff here, kookville. Now, when someone comes to you and they tell you, I saw Jesus in the mirror while I was shaving this morning, you just, you know, whatever. You know, I don't know what to even make of that. Why? Because number one, I can't verify it. And number two, I can't falsify it. So I just listen and then move on. Because it's kind of nothing, I just can't, I can't process that. Um, and here's Abraham, and he gets some sort of call from God to go to a land that he did not know from his place. And, and this is where the Bible, to me, is frustrating. I don't know if it is to you. And all we get is verse 4. And so Abraham went... As the Lord had told him. There's no fill in the narrative here. If Homer were writing this, or Virgil, we'd have three chapters in between. You you know, we'd have three chapters in between verse 3 and verse 4, right? I mean, just think about um, the, uh, the Odyssey. The whole chapter given to how Odysseus got his scar as a little boy when his nursemaid sees him and sees his scar and recognizes, oh, you're not a just a, a wayfarer traveler. You're Odysseus come back. And then she reflects on how she remembers how Odysseus got the scars. I mean, Homer would just fill this with information. And what does the Bible do? Zilcho. Right? God told him to do this and next verse. And he went and he did it. We don't know how he received the thought. We don't know how the impression came to him. We have no idea of the conversation he had with Sarah and his brother and, and all the people under his patronage. Hey, by the way, last night um, um, God uh, um, told me that we need to just sort of go, and uh, and then and and we're going to do that tomorrow morning. In fact, we're just all just going to get up and we're all just going to going to go. And here they are. This is fascinating, right? So they're going, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was, well, this certainly adds to the drama of the story, 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And he took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, who becomes a bit of a pain in some appendage before the story's over, um, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah, which becomes important because in Genesis 18, he has another encounter here. Now, to the Oaks of Morah, at the time, and at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. That's one of my favorite little throwaway lines in Genesis, right? This is where the narrator breaks the story. This is, this is a Shakespearean aside. You know, this is when Hamlet is having a conversation with his mother and breaks character and looks out at the audience and says, she has no idea what's going on. This is the narrator giving you an aside. Oh, hey, by the way, when Abraham was doing all this, the Canaanites weren't even in the land yet. Well, what's the unspoken assumption here? Well, at the time of writing and editing and shaping of this book, they were in the land. So you see a distance from the narrator and the events that are being narrated. And so the narrator kind of jumps in here and says, hey, by the way, Canaanites were around, uh, weren't even around during that time. So the Lord appeared to Abraham there and he said, to your offspring, I will give this land. To your seed, I will give this land. And he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country in the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent at Bethel in the west, and Ai in the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. In verse 9, And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. 
you, you get the sense here, Haran was probably, best estimates, we're talking maybe northern Iran, Iraq, somewhere in there, the northern area of, of, the, of the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent area, moves down south. He comes into the land of Canaan. God tells him, this is going to be your land for all your offspring. This is going to be the place where I bring my rest back to bear on my people. This is where it's going to happen right here for all of your offspring. And then he builds an altar there. And what does he do? And then he travels on. He doesn't stay. He goes toward the Negev, which is, you think about it, that's south of the Dead Sea, moving down south into the Levant, all the way near toward the Sinai area. He's going way away from the land of Canaan. He is moving. And guess what we learn about Abraham? You all know this, right? Because he becomes an embodiment. He becomes a particularized story that doesn't just tell us about him historically, although it does do that. I don't think there's any reason to believe that these things didn't occur. But it's not merely that. He becomes a figure. He becomes a type of what it means to be a person living in covenant communion with God as a pilgrim in this world. I'm going to give you this land. Is that right? Well, I'm going to build you an altar here and I'm going to worship. And then there he goes, traveling on. And he never stops traveling. This is the fascinating thing about Abraham's existence. He never stops traveling. He goes down to Egypt. He goes to I mean, he goes all over the place. But he never, he never stops traveling. And those of you who know the story, which is all of you, you realize what by the end of Abraham's life, the only land that he actually owns that's his is the burial plot that he buries Sarah in at the end of her life. That's Advent hope. That's the existence of recognizing that God has given me, given me a set of promises. And I'm going to rely and lean on His promises. Even when my existence now, in this particular mode of being now, is not living into the full enjoyment and fulfillment of those promises. God, God makes a promise to, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, which by the time we get into Joshua and then Judges and then into Samuel and Kings, we see all of it coming to fruition. But Abraham himself never experienced the fulfillment of the promises that God made to him and to his offspring. St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa says at the beginning, and I, I, I think Thomas is fascinating in these matters. Thomas says, we use words to signify things. Or we, we say tree and you think about a tree. Now I've got, we, we can talk about this, this fascinating subject of, of, of sort of philosophical exploration. But we use words and we, and I think all of these are social constructs. There's no, there's no sort of substantial relationship between our word tree, um, and, you know, the little, the thing out there that's growing with leaves on it and any more than there is for like in German, Baum and tree. I mean, we, these are social constructs and we teach our children, we socialize ourselves to speak in this way and that's kind of how language works. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. But we do that. We use words to signify things. But Aquinas goes on to say, but only God can associate things with things. We do words to things. God associates things with things. And he does that in the life of Abraham. Abraham is an event. He's a person. He's a thing. He's something that we can look to, that's material and formed in this world. But he's not left in his world. God associates Abraham with what it means for us, for you and for me, to live in a life of Advent hope, recognizing that God makes promises, but sometimes the fulfillment of those promises, and let's just be frank, more often than not, 
the fulfillment of those promises are never material things that we hold on to in this world. They point us to the next world in Advent hope. I was in a church setting years ago, um, or maybe I heard about this from a friend from a church when we were in St. Andrews, where the, the rector got up in Scottish Episcopal Church and he said, what are you giving up this year for Advent? Right. We're like, what? Because right. we think about that with Lent, right? What are you going to give up for Lent? But you know, there is a history in, in the life of the church that both Advent and Lent mirror one another as seasons of repentance. Both of them are. That's why in a certain sort of settings, you'll see people wear a lot of black during, during the first um, weeks of Advent as well. Um, I think this is a kind of a fascinating thing with Abraham here, to kind of challenge me, to challenge you, to think about what it means to live in hope, to live in the, in the hope of God's future promises being made sure and true, even when in the current moment it doesn't seem as if that's the case in toto. All right, let's pray. So Lord, thank you for these, these things. Thank you for Abraham and the promises that you made to him. You gave him a word and he acted on it. And it's an incredible thing. He certainly was not faultless. It seems like Abraham just makes mistakes at every turn. And that's hopeful for us as well. Um, but Lord, he holds on to your promises with the kind of fervor that would even take him to a mountain willing to let a knife fall on his own son as an act of obedience. Lord, I, I pray that you'll give us a sense of hope and faith and confidence that we believe your promises and your son to be true and we wait for them to appear, for them to make their advent among us. In Jesus' name, amen.